Hey, it's Ray. Welcome to Get Railed. Today on the show, I have someone who I really admire his work. He also works in the recovery field and has a long history. I think we started around the same time working in recovery. Kindness, connection to people, the way he spoke about others, just a good guy all around. He has started a new project in his professional life, which I have a curiosity about. And, you know, once you work in the field of helping people, I always was taught, and my mentor shared this with me years ago when I was getting my training, that when you work helping people, people just present themselves to you. You don't really need to actively seek it out. I've never advertised in my own business It has always been word of mouth, and over time, people really start to get to know you. So when you've been doing it uh, for a significant amount of time, people find their way to you again and again. And that is sort of a powerful thing about working, doing the best you can do, and having good experiences, trying to help people navigate this, this life in and out of addiction. I mean, you lose a lot of people. You see a lot of people go out. You do see people recover. You see people come back together. Families come together. And there's nothing in the world like it in my experience of seeing somebody get better and have their family tell you how much your connection to whoever uh, you helped really made a significant impact on their family their friends, their life, their relationship, all of that. And that's a really good feeling. So I'm very excited today to talk to him because I really like how he describes and how he got to the point where he started in recovery. And I, I've i spoken about this with him years ago, but never in a formal setting where we could have time together just to talk about how this all started for each of us and where we see it going and could we have anticipated that we would be where we are now all these years later. So I look forward to welcoming welcoming our guest on the show today. Did you just start doing a podcast? I started a little bit ago, uh, maybe eight months ago. And initially what I wanted to do was just have people in my regular life that ask me questions about what should they do about them, their lives, come and speak to me about it. So it started that way, like right. a like a digital Ann Landers. What should I do about this? What should I do about okay. that? But the only questions right. I was ever getting was, how do you quit smoking crystal meth? How do Drink I detox it, I from this? You know. Right. No, I know. Well, that's what people want to... Look, I can't say anything... I could be on a, anywhere, anything you say about what you do, somebody says, oh my God, my nephew yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm really yeah. excited it's, to it's have the you educational the educational thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm excited to be here. So, so let me introduce you uh, and, um, okay. I would like to introduce, uh, my good friend, Joe. I haven't seen you for a long time. Joe Schrank, who has been working in recovery, for a very long time, you're probably one of the first people that I met when I did my training, after I did my training. So I have a lot of questions to ask you, but welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Ray. Very nice to have been asked. 
and nice to see you and love the Ramones tea. Thank you so much. Um, one thing I was thinking about is I don't really remember exactly when we met or how we met, but what started you in this profession wanting to work in recovery with addicts? How did that begin? Just total insanity. I just had no idea what I was signing up for. So I figured, um, you know, I'd just go for it. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, part of it, part of it is my own. I mean, I'm sober 27 years. Um, so that was part of it, but I kind of got down the road of social work theory and practice in a program, um, after I'd gotten sober and then in a master's program. And I just felt like in social work, if you work on this problem, you work on all problems, if that makes sense. Because, you know, when you work in family systems, if you, if people stop drinking, everything gets better, whatever it is, um, if it's a domestic violence situation that improves, if it's a, a childhood abuse, everything gets better when people stop abusing substances. Exactly. So that was really, I think what it was, was that, that this particular issue hemorrhages into all others. Mm-hmm. And I know that you had, this is, this is at least how I remember it. You started okay. one of the very first ever sober livings in Brooklyn. Is that right? In Williamsburg? That is correct. We, yeah, we were the first sober living and it was an interesting experience to say the least. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I come from Los Angeles. I'd been, I'd been working as a clinician at, at promises, you know, this kind of fancy pants thing in Malibu. And then when we came back to New York, when our son was born, I couldn't, I couldn't believe there was a city of 8 million people with no sober living. Yeah. Like what do people do, you know, when they come out of treatment? So that's, kind of how I started that. I wish I knew more about it when I started it, but if you know what you're in for, you may not do it. I don't, you know, I don't know, but I'm actually pretty proud of that because it seems to be, you know, definitely caught on. And really the most important thing is that people have their needs met and they have the best chance of success. So it doesn't have to be me that's successful at it or, um, but I kind of like, it gets to be, I felt like an innkeeper where only crazy people could be. And then if you did get a minute for your personal life, somebody's parents called you to yell at you. Yeah. So it's like, it's really not a great life. Although, um, I'm, look, I'm happy we did it. I'm happy it, it succeeded and I'm happy people have options in the city now. Yeah. I, I brought a lot of clients there and I think it was a fantastic facility. And what I initially thought, cause I didn't go to treatment, I just did it all in AA, the hospital in AA. Yeah. But what I loved about the loft, it was loft 107, right? Or was it 104? Yeah. Um, seven. Okay. Seven. Good memory. Yeah. What I loved about it is it yeah. smelled like chocolate. Number one, um, because of the chocolate. Okay. Cause the mass brothers chocolate factory. Yeah. And there was a dog, there were people that were sitting around just talking, there were people outside smoking cigarettes, and I just thought, this is family, it's great. Mm. Well, thank you. I mean, the intention was that, right, was to build community, was to give people options, to not expect perfection, to understand that they are frail and they're going to fall, but that we were scaffolding around them so they didn't fall to the abyss and they could get back on track. Um, And yeah, that was sort of, the intention was to keep it keep it light, keep it homey, not institutionalized. You know, a lot of people come in, when they come in to recover, people are angry at them 
whether it's family or the community, or maybe they did something that got them entangled in the legal system. So I just thought, all right, well, they've had enough of that. Like we don't need to do that here. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I want to ask you before we get into your current um, situation is I know you've had different jobs in recovery and you've sort of moved around. How have you, mm-hmm. one thing that I understand for my, my own self, and you probably face this out in the real world is people have no idea. Like when you were speaking about your job never ends when you do this type of work, because there's always somebody that's ODing. The Correct. parents want to know where the last person was that they cop drugs from. When did they pass away? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. You know, all this. And so it's a total emotional inundation as much as you want to give out to help someone, it really takes a physical and emotional toll on you. And, um, my question to you is, I know you've moved around in recovery and you've done various different things in different states and locations. Has that been something that you were conscious of or did you decide to do it because of a way of bettering the help that you were giving by also nourishing and honoring what you needed as a professional? Yeah, I mean, somewhat. Look, I think that you learn a lot, right? Like literally when I was in social work school, I thought, wow, when everybody's sober, I don't know, I guess I'll have to sell insurance. Like I, you know, and, and so you get past that naivete and you start to understand more and more and more and more. I think that my career has been evolutionary in that I, you know, there was a time when I was adamant about total abstinence for all people. You know, I moved away from that after my friend Greg Geraldo, who you, I don't, yes. I don't know if you, did you know Greg? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you know, after he overdosed and died, I moved away from that because how many times could we yell at him? How many times could we tell him drugs are bad? And then after a while, I was like, well, he went to Harvard. He can figure this out. Um, How many times was he going to go to residential treatment? You know, that that wasn't it and that there had to be a more diversified way, right? And so if, if people, you know, if you really read the data, there are 23 million Americans who identify themselves as having addressed their issue with substance misuse. There are 3 million members of AA globally. So that means there are 20 million people who have found some other way. Um, you know, and as a social worker, from an ethical standpoint, we can't mandate how people get better. We present their options and we, we support their choice. So I think when I started the Cannabis Inclusive Rehab in Los Angeles, <laughs> which I mean, I think it took people. I think people were like, "What the actual? Uh, what is Joe Shrink doing? What is this all about?" My thinking on the matter was: there are people out there where pacing matters, yeah. right? And people who are opiate dependent—it's such a jarring thing to give up opiates. Is you know, and what if they're medicinal cannabis users? They're not risking death. I feel like, well, that's some kind of success. Um, and the truth is they get to make the decision about how they want to live. Not, not the rehab business, not the people around them, you know, that they have to recovery has to be self-defined. Um, definitional authority of it lies with the individual. Um, you know, as a social worker or as any, you know, any professional, we could say probably not a good idea. Right. Right. I mean, if you're this or that. So I think, um, it, it, it was, it sort of was bad. It was sort of, you know, how can I have integrity? And I've also, 
I've also been on a mission my entire career to expand recovery, to welcome more people in, to have a more diversified um, population of people who are Cali sober or, you know, however they're going to do it. I think it largely is about improving your life. And, you know, I mean, who am I to say if somebody's life is acceptable or not acceptable based on, and people say that to me all the time. Yes, but you're an AA guy. I proudly am. Um, You know, I'm also Catholic. (laughs) You know, I don't think 700 million Hindus are going to be Catholic because I am. Um, And, you know, and oddly enough, it was Pope Pius X who said that evangelicalism is a sin, that we have to allow other people to form their own relationship with God. You know, we do things in the world because we're Catholic, not because other people are. And that's kind of how I feel about recovery. Like I want people to have, you know, the space to figure out what's going to be best for them. Um, You know, and it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm not much of a pop starlet um, person, but (laughs) Demi Lovato said she was Cali sober. And then she said, you know what? I need to be regular sober. Like, okay, good. You know, you get to try on hats. You get to see what's going to fit. You get to make changes. You get to, you get to say, I need to change this up in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was actually a really good example of how people can, um, you know, find their own way. Yeah. And also, I think in my experience, just seeing the way, obviously, we're at a time now where opiates are there's more, there's more of a need to pay attention to that than, you know, I, I sometimes think it would be nice just to have an average alcoholic that you could actually take into treatment and right. is willing because the drugs and the, the crystal meth and the things that are out there now, the fentanyl, I mean, it is producing such a whirlwind in my client base that, you know, I'm going to funerals, I'm dealing with psychosis. There's all these mm-hmm. things that has made it so, so, so much bigger than it ever was that I see that we're just on this wheel that's, it's becoming more and more and more and Mm -hmm. overtaking a totally different type of notion than when I was training, it was about alcoholism and maybe some benzos, you know, but it's, it's so synthetic now that that it's, it's a different, it's a bigger call to need. One thing that when you were just speaking, I was thinking about, it also seems that there are a lot of people that want to get into the recovery business bad, good, and indifferent. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ever feel mm-hmm. that sometimes there are people that are taking on the role of being a recovery specialist to some degree that is causing any destruction or harm to people that really need help, but they don't have the experience or the professional backing to support mm-hmm. what they're trying to do? Oh, without question. I mean, it's an unregulated thing. It's very corrupt. It's very pay to play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's actually really horrible in a lot of ways. And I think that the recovery business and specifically the, the acute care residential model of rehab is largely ineffective, mm-hmm. right? So you have a chronic long-term problem and it's only addressed in acuity for 30 days of residential treatment, which may be fine and it may be a help, um, but it's not a solution, mm-hmm. right? And the solution has to come internally. It has to come from... Um, uh, process, right? So it's a lifestyle adaptation. It's not an event. 
And I think that what you just said about the complexity of things that we're seeing, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the mental health issues that are dislodged from how the drug use culture has changed over the years is really, um, I don't know, man, I've never seen a fourth step address meth-induced psychosis. Mm -hmm. Haven't seen it. Yeah. You know, that requires a lot more skill, knowledge, value, skills. It also requires a lot more people, whether it's medical, psychiatric, you know, there's a whole other thing. So there are a lot of people out there who are basing their knowledge on lived experience, which might be effective, except that their lived experience is the sampling of one, right, themselves. And if the only arrow in your quiver is what I did, it can be extremely damaging. Mm -hmm. Like the entire, it all needs to be overhauled in a million different ways. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously I have my issues with the rehab business. They have their issues with me. That's fine. I don't, you know, I don't need to be popular and I don't need to fill their beds. You know, I need people to get better. Yeah. Um, and like how they're going to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, a good old fashioned alcoholic, that'd be refreshing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how about this guy? He drinks too much, you know, <laughs> but, you know, especially with younger people and I don't, I, you know, I don't know what, look, amphetamines have done a number on the culture, Yeah. you know, and so is the opiates because the dependency is so difficult to break. Um, and it is so difficult to push in another trajectory and people do not like it when I say it. Um, but medication assisted recovery is valid. And for every one of those old guys in NA who says, I did it, you know, I wrote my steps, you know, all that stuff. There are hundreds of thousands of people who have not made it with that plan. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> you know, people who are maintained medically, uh, the death rate falls 85, 90%, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, if there was if there was something that made the death rate of leukemia fall 80 or 90 percent, we wouldn't shame people for doing it. Exactly. We'd say, wow, yeah. are you lucky that there's something for you? Um, and again, I'm always deferring to my Catholicism, which people also find odd. <laughs> but, but the Jesuits or actually intellectual liberals would say that medical breakthroughs in science is a gift from God and who are you to reject that? So I, that's kind of how I think of medication mm -hmm. assistance. Um, but yeah, I think there are a lot of reckless, dangerous people out there. And I think it's hard because the consumer is not educated. Mm -hmm. You know, they're desperate and they're clinging to the first person that comes along who sounds like they make sense to them. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good model. Yeah. at all you know very much so it's interesting because you know, yeah i mean and i mean look and if it was i'm sorry if it were successful why do we have the body count that we have yeah yeah well also we have just massive amounts of fentanyl coming in that's in everything i mean if i were a drug addict today or a recreational right. user i would be terrified i mean because people mm -hmm. that aren't junkies are actually overdosing just from one little mm -hmm. line at a cocktail party Totally, which is what I tell my my children, who are not children, they're young adults, but um, no pills, no powders, no distilled spirits. Yeah. 
You know, I didn't say don't go to a party. I didn't say don't have fun. I said no pills, no powders, no distilled spirits. That means cannabis and that means beer. Um, uh, You know, I prefer neither. But since people are people and young people are young people, let's, you know, we should do this in a more realistic way. And I think that the issue is not the border. Um, The issue is that there's not a safe supply chain. If there were toxic uh, Jack Daniels where people drop dead because it was poison, we'd be doing something about it. Um, And that's the other thing I don't really understand is why are alcoholics so special? Like why do they get protections like consumer and government oversight? Why do, you know, and every time I advocate for safe uh, consumption facilities, I get pushback and it's like, well, alcoholics have them. They're called hotel lobbies and bars. Like, why are they, why do they get them? Um, and if you don't have them, it means the whole city is an unsafe consumption facility. So I think it's those kinds of things that we need to start implementing. We not, and need to start looking at the Canadian and European models um, because there are overdoses in Portugal and France. But not many. But very rarely. Exactly. No. Very, very rarely does that happen. Um, and, you know. Yeah, what it know. fascinates. Why aren't we asking, yeah, hey, Portugal, what'd you do? Like, yeah. I don't get it why we don't do that. What fascinates me, because I've lived in Italy and I spend a lot of time in Europe, is everything you can just walk into a pharmacy and get whatever you want without a prescription. But nobody does that there. Mm-hmm. It's It's something in... Our nature, uh, the the it's almost like the secret shaking down of the prescription or the illegal substance. It's sort of the unchartered act mm-hmm. that's bad. That's the secret that's going to get something that fuels this curiosity. Uh, because America has it the worst of anywhere. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It does. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's probably a few things. It's the forbidden fruit thing, right? Like you tell a human since the Bible, don't touch that one. Oh boy, that's a bad one. Yeah. That's the sure way to get a human to do it. Yeah. So there is that aspect of it. Um, you know, I also think that there's, there are the European model is that they, you, they, the health ministry handles addiction and, and substance overuse or use or whatever it is. And it's, you know, you take crime out of it. Americans have made it a moral thing. Right. And as much as Americans say, oh, no, it's a disease. No, it's not. You don't put people in prison because they have diabetes. Nobody thinks it's a disease, right? Right. The cops don't beat down diabetics because they ate Skittles. So if we're going to say it's a disease, we need to act like it's a disease. And if we're going to say that, we need to treat these people like patients. Um and with that kind of, you know, energy and the zeitgeist of the culture, hey, you want to be a a, a, a a criminal? Come into, you know, you know, announce you have a drug problem. Like who who would yeah. take that deal? Nobody wants that deal. Like exactly. <laughs> nobody wants. You want some shame and some some criminal issues. Okay, tell tell us about your drug problem and humiliation. Tell us about your drug problem. You know, that's just not a, it's not a thing. And it's really interesting with the Adult Use Act in California with cannabis. um, The, they said, well, use spiked. Use didn't spike. Accurate reporting spiked. Mm. 
Right. Meaning when people were no longer criminals, they were honest about it. Um, you know, um, and it also expanded in a way like my mother's entire bridge group loves weed for arthritis and, exactly. you know, but you know, they're not taking bong rips at bridge. You know, they're, <laughs> they're using, <laughs> they're they do using have to play. My mother's, totally. My mother swears. Oh my God. I sleep all night. My, my knee doesn't hurt. I'm like, great. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. So I think that like how we present things and what's done with any drug matters. If we present it as the bad brown people are bringing it across the border, it's not really addressing the issue. Exactly. If we present it as, you know, drug addicts are losers, you know, are they? Right. Not really. I mean, people who use drugs are everybody. They're, your mailman and your sister-in-law and, you know, so if we're not going to be, we're not going to approach this as a user friendly system, we're not really going to make any progress. Yeah. So here's one question I have for you before we get to the present of what you're doing, which I'm really curious about is, and whatever yeah. comes off the top of your consciousness, have you ever been really surprised <laughs> by what you've witnessed or seen working this amount of time in recovery has something ever just floored you that you've never forgotten. You mean something? Oh my God. It's interesting. Every time I think I've seen it all, something happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I was younger, you know, 10 years ago, I was absolutely floored at the number of people I knew who were dying. Yeah. Um, sadly, and I haven't gotten desensitized to it, but I've gotten used to it. I know it's going to happen. Don't necessarily know who or when, um, I've been shocked at the, the cards I've gotten from, fuck you. I hate you. You want my parents money, you know? And I've gotten like a baby announcement. I was like, wait, 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 what? Yeah. What? This kid's five years sober? I thought he hated me. I mean, there's always. <laughs> right. Well, of course. Right. I mean, and it's fine. I don't, you know, that's okay. Yeah. You can hate me. I'm, um, I, I think I'm still surprised at the unpredictability of it all. Yeah. Um, that I've, I've given up. Uh, predicting who's going to do what, you know, who's not, because people seem like they're just chugging along and they're doing great. And then they don't. Yeah. And there are people that are like, Oh my God, that guy, forget it. He's, you know, and then they pull it in, you know, you never, you just never really know. I think it's, it's just a matter of nobody understands addiction. You've been in this 20 years. I've been in this 20 years. We don't understand addiction. It's, it's so much larger than us. You know, we probably understand certain things about it or more than the average person, or we understand certain ways that help, or we've seen pervasive patterns of, of how what's helped people. We don't understand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I really want to, I'm very curious about what you started now, because in my, just what little I've, I, I know that you've spoken to me about, which isn't much, you've taken your experience working in a lot of hardship, negativity, emotional draining work, and you've funneled it into a positive way, which is what 
I really like <laughs> to seek out in my own professional yeah. work too, because that is when right. you really start to see progress and happiness <clears throat> and like you're making, making an actual impact on someone's life for the better, because you, you, it's almost like a preventative to the start of an addict. So tell, tell us what you're, what you're currently doing. So, I mean, this goes back decades for me. When I was in social work school, I had um, this idea that the football team should have a social worker integrated into the staff. And they looked at me like, oh boy, okay, what? Um, <laughs> but my theory was, look, there's 120 boys on this football team. And this was at the University of Illinois. So it was big time, Big Ten on TV on Saturday football. Um, there's 120 18 to 23 year olds on this team from housing projects in East St. Louis or Chicago. I don't know if you put 120 18 to 25 year olds in anything, isn't something going to happen? Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> just, and I, and I had, you know, I, I get, I'd get upset because they would do anything for a physical injury. Like we had five orthopedists, right? Um, And there was a kid on the team who, he broke his ankle. I think he was, you know, partying, never really admitted to it. But anyway, broke his ankle. They drove him to class in a golf cart. They called his mother every 15 minutes. They had the best orthopedists in Chicago. They had this, they had that, they had the other thing. When he presented with mental health issues and substance misuse, they were just Pontius Pilate, just, you know, goodbye. Oh, like, wow. that is it. We're not going to do anything about that. And I couldn't reconcile, well, how is it that they put so much effort into their physical, but not their emotional and mental health? And one of the reasons I couldn't, I couldn't really get my head around it is because their emotional and mental health had to impact their athletic ability. Uh-huh. You know, it just did. So, um I did the only reasonable thing. I brought him home and I think I kind of ruined my first marriage with that <laughs> idea. Yeah. <laughs> she was like wanting a baby and I was not nice about it. I was like, what's wrong with him? Go to the gap. He needs stuff. Right. Like what's wrong with him? Yeah, I know he's 21. He's great. He already, he's great. But this isn't this good enough, you know, but so I've had this idea for a really long time that mental health and sports intersect. Um, and I've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And I don't want to say who, but a general manager of a major league baseball team told me, well, but they're baseball players. And I was like, yes, I understand they're baseball player, (laughs) but, but there's more to it than that. So here I am now 54. Um, and I just kept pitching this idea and someone finally took me up on it, which is the Georgia State uh, baseball team. So I'm the emotional well-being coach for the Georgia State baseball team. I'm the only NCAA baseball coach who never talks about baseball, which I actually think is sort of a source of pride. That is beautiful. Um, Yeah, and it's been fascinating because if you ask your average clinician, they'll tell you that that population is resistant. They're help projecting. They're really hard to get through. My theory is Einstein said, we're all geniuses, but if you ask a fish to climb a tree, you're going to be very disappointed. Mm -hmm. 
So when you bring a young guy like that into a therapy office, you're asking a fish to climb a tree and it doesn't go well. But here's my experience with that. Put on a baseball uniform, sit in the dugout and they're chatty Cathy. Like they never stop talking. I know about all kinds of issues um, that you can imagine happen to young men. And, you know, they aren't resistant to it at all. They're actually really open to it. And they're really open to the idea that how they feel and what their mental health is like is impacting them, not only as athletes, but as, as young men. Um, so, you know, I think it's a really important thing. I think sports is an important system in America, just writ large. Like I, I think if Jackie Robinson didn't play baseball for the Brooklyn Dodgers, the civil rights movement wouldn't have happened when it did. You know, when, when America was like, all right, if we can play baseball with black people, maybe we can ride on the bus with black people. You know, I think it's a really, really important thing. And I think that with these young guys normalizing that you're a human and something's going to happen. Right. Like, and it doesn't necessarily have to, you don't have to wait for something to happen because you know, if we're not attending to our garden, the thing will be overrun with weeds. So it's actually really great because after every practice or every game, they say, you know, bumps, bruises, hurt fingers, blah, blah, blah. See the trainer immediately. You're not sleeping. Your mother's mad at you. If your girlfriend has had it, see Joe, you know? So, I mean, it's been, yeah, I, I, and I, it's just the perfect thing for me because, you know, there's 50 of them. That's great. So it's endless, you know, it's, it does never stop. Yeah. And, and you feel like because they're so impressionable and you're a big guy with a good outlook, you're very positive. People are attracted to you. Yeah. Uh, you know, all types of people, especially in the recovery world, there's certain people that have this sort of beacon calling that you're always going to have people asking you things because you're, you're out there. They feel comfortable enough to approach you and say, Hey, what do you think about this? I think that's incredible. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that they teach in social work school is the conscious use of self, right? Like, how are you, what are you bringing into the room? And I know what I'm bringing into the room. I'm bringing 20% cop, 70% dad, you know, um, you know, especially to to that room. Um, I, you know, and I say it all the time. I say it to the coach, the head coach, who's this great guy who I have the utmost of respect for because he was like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, he didn't say, well, they're baseball players. He said, oh yeah, no, they, they, you know, we've, we've tried to get them to go to the counseling office on campus and maybe they'll go once or twice. We don't really like it. And it's just another thing for them to do. It's not really the same thing as somebody integrated into their world. Mm-hmm. Like that video that I sent you, I'm standing there, you know, that kid was, you know, he's a pitcher. So he was uh, just kind of hanging around, but we're standing there batting practice and he's telling me, you know, oh, I saw my mother and yeah, I'm feeling pretty, you know, I mean, it was, so I think that that's sort of an important thing that it's, there's some clinical skill. 80% of it is that they have a grown up man listening to them. Um, and you know, I, and I know, you know, Dr. Bienenfeld, you should have him as a guest. Um, 
Very well. You know, he's just, yeah, he's a great guy. But, you know, he says, he said to me, if they're talking, it's working. And I was like, okay, they're talking. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know. I think you could have this in every single industry. I mean, as you know, there's something about people that have a special talent in the public eye that are rewarded for their hard work, their training, their talent, their accessibility. And what do they do with all that? It seems, as you and I both know, that people that are in this sort of highlighted life have a lot of stuff that they need to work on. I mean, whether you're a singer or whether you're an actress or whether you're a concert pianist or whether you play for a certain sports team, everybody has a piece Mm -hmm. of mental help, health that needs help or assistance. So if you ask me, you could be the coach for, you could, you could be the emotional coach on football teams, basketball teams, you know, hockey team, any league. Oh, well, for sure. I mean, I think that that's sort of the lesson of Ted Lasso is that coaching's coaching. Yeah. And as much as he, you know, on that show where they were trying to perform as soccer players, they were trying to perform as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, I, I think that the sport doesn't necessarily matter as much. I think it's the, it's the age, it's the mentality, um, you know, and there, and it's very quick, you know, this kid came off the field. What do you do if you just suck? And I was like, but you don't, you're, you're a division one college athlete. You are, you are an elite, like you're in the 99th percentile of people who play a sport. Incredible. He was like, Oh, I didn't think of that. I was like, well, think of it. And you know, and you get back in the batter's box. That's what you do. And that's what you do in your life. You know, we're all going to skin our knees. Everybody's human, you know, and that's the other thing that I think is really important to kids to, to, because we think of mental health as, as a response to something, not as, you know, something that we just have to integrate into our lives because look, marriages go south and people pass away and we don't get the job that we wanted to get. Like we're, there's some, things are always going to happen to us in a way that's disappointing or, or hard. And as long as we frame mental health as, mental health care is, you know, no, 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 that's for, that's for this, that's for that, that's for, you know, and then, and then we sort of cave into it around a crisis. It's not really the right mentality. And so look, I don't know any, some sports team could call me and offer me a lot of money. I am not leaving Georgia state. Like I, oh, nice. <laughs> it's just we'll, we'll take much, a record too much loyalty now. Now, the other thing is that I think the the public thinks is that if you are sort of idolized and if you're one of today's heroes, you don't have any emotional mm -hmm. or mental problems. You don't have a drug problem. You don't have a sex problem. You don't have a relationship problem Mm -hmm. because everything looks so beautiful and shiny and your outfit and your butt and your face and your your $30 million contract and your football and this and that. But really, when it all comes yeah. down to it, humans are humans, and we all have issues. It doesn't matter what we do professionally, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, humans are humans, and, you know, I mean, sometimes people's packages or their house or their exterior is shinier or they have more options. That doesn't mean they're immune from, from feeling, yeah. you know, from problems. Um, you know, I think it's just sort of a different context of, of how people are going to get better. So... Yeah, I hear that a lot. Like, I remember when um, Robin Williams yes. died, and people were like, how could you? He had everything. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, the guy was a bipolar cocaine addict. He was in his 60s. It's pretty good. 
that's a, that's a, that is a tremendous amount of energy to live that life. Yeah. Um, he expended you know, all and of it. it was, I, of course, I, it was tragic. Yeah, very. Totally. He was. It was tragic. It was awful. I'm not saying. Oh yes, he was done. Fuck him. I just think. Like, yeah. yeah, you know, that's yeah. even having everything. That's a tough hand to play. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of physical, mental and all the emotion that goes with it. I mean, he was never at rest. I knew Robin. He always was trying to entertain people at almost the deflection of his his own personal agency, because it was easier to make you laugh yeah. whether than it was to actually access what was going on inside. And that feels like worlds a part of discovering who you are. So I can just say that I know you're doing, you're still doing lots of good in case you didn't know that. And I'm happy that you're, that you're well, there you. at Georgia, Georgia state. And, um, I would love for you to come get railed anytime you want on the show. <laughs> I'd love to. I mean, I, and I have a million guest suggestions and it was, it's That'd very nice to see you. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I still do what I do. I mean, I still see people individually and I still see clients and that kind of thing. Um, I'm hoping to, uh, I'm hoping to continue to grow in the sports world right. because I think it's, I think it's really important just for them for sure. Yes. Um, but also for the culture to say, yeah, I mean, you know, life is hard. It's, and I don't know, I think the pandemic just did such a number on everybody yeah. that, um, True. you know, I definitely see that with, with the kid, the, the young guys on the team, some of them didn't go to school for three years. Yeah. It's just what I keep telling the coach. I'm like, that's, that's a lot. Like now they're here at college and, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're kind of developmentally delayed from sitting in front of their computer going to school and he's like, you know, okay. Yeah. That's, that makes sense. So, you know, here we are. Um, and I think it's a real opportunity to change just the attitude about all of it, yeah. you know. And there's something I, I really enjoy and admire about the way that you work, which I always have. Uh, you're just very, you're very open, you're very realistic, and you're very human. So it's easy to talk to you. So these guys are lucky. And anyone who comes across your path as a coach or, you know, interventionist or whatever element it is, um, are lucky. And I'm, I'm happy that you came mm -hmm. to the show and I would next time in your, in New York, I'll have to say hi. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see you. Okay, great. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Ray. That was a great discussion with Joe Schrank. I also wanted to say this as part of one of my previous episodes that whatever I express as an opinion or, uh, preference or discussion that I might be having today in February 2024 might be very different when I have another conversation with another person. So it is not the said spoken thing that is always what is really reality. It's just often the way I'm perceiving things in the moment. I never want to offend anyone by saying something that might counteract what they're doing in their own lives. I strongly believe in a pe people deciding what is best for them. So I just wanted to put that in there. Um, at any point, if anyone would like to discuss what they're feeling or how they see it, there is always room for learning and growing and understanding more as humans, as people in life. So feel free to shoot me any questions or anything that you think, oh, I don't, I don't know what she said there. 
uh, because I'm always wanting to listen to learn more, especially how to relate to you and you to relate to me. 